As the futures of whistleblowers like Edward Snowden and Julian Assange hang in the balance, the fate of another has been sealed for 35 years. Chelsea Manning sacrificed everything to leak classified information to the public and expose some of the most heinous war crimes from Iraq and Afghanistan, forever changing the course of history. She shattered paradigms yet again by coming out as a transgender female. And in a recent interview from jail, she discusses her legal fight for hormone therapy as a means to help other transgender prisoners survive. Now she's tweeting from prison via third party. And in her first tweet, she gave a little shout out to journalist Alexa O'Brien. And for good reason. Alexa is an independent investigative journalist who is most tirelessly dedicated to the Manning case. Since 2012, she's provided an archive of the only available transcripts of Manning's closed trial. But Alexa doesn't only fight for whistleblowers, she also fights to preserve our civil liberties. She was one of the main plaintiffs on the National Defense Authorization Act lawsuit filed against Obama, led by Chris Hedges. She was also foundational in the initial organizing group for Occupy Wall Street called U.S. Day of Rage. Earlier, Robbie and I spoke to Alexa about Manning's exposures, the erosion of civil liberties in a post-9-11 world, and the conjoining of entertainment, tech, and military industries. Check it out. Thanks so much uh, for taking the time to join my brother and I today. I wanted to start with talking about the NDA really quickly and you're a plaintiff on the lawsuit against Obama for the National Defense Authorization Act. Now that we're kind of on the eve of the renewal of the Patriot Act, the new AUMF uh, passing, I mean, when these things initially passed, 9-11 had just happened. But now there's just completely no threat to this country. I mean, there's barely any debate about any of this legislation. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that, you know, we're operating in an environment where I mean, there's a lot of forces at play here. We're operating in an environment where you have an entire economy uh, that's globalized and, fin- and financialized. So essentially, you know, it's an economy that's built on risk. And what do you do to mitigate risk, whether, you know, in reality or in theory, you need intelligence. And so, you know, there is, I think, a greater sense of um, instability and People are, of course, uh, aware of how interconnected we are and the kinds of sort of issues that we face, um, you know, on the platforms that we use and the kinds of systems that we've built. So certainly there is a certain instability. And then there's also the sort of financial incentive uh, from the war on terror and from the private and the you know, government military intelligence complex. And I think that, you know, there are people who who prey after that and who who prey on, you know, Americans fears. And then you have the news media who sort of propels and perpetuates this kind of uh, reality. So I think all those things sort of play into um, the kinds of of legislations and, and deliberation that you see happening sort of out in the public realm, in the mainstream public realm. Do you think that's why it's so hard to just retroactively repeal any of this once it's in place as well? Just kind of that permeance of, of warfare constantly and just kind of the acceptance of it? You know, this is kind of a classical political philosophy question, you know. Mm. 
I mean, I remember during the Cold War as a young kid asking myself, well, why don't they just revolt in, you know, the former Soviet Union? Or why don't they just, you know, run out into the streets in East Germany and say, you know, sorry, we're not into this. Um, you know, of course, it's much more complex because people, um, people are tied into the incentives and the punishments that are dealt when you sort of live according to, you know, let's say your own um, conscience. And there are consequences. I mean, this has been, I'm not the first person to talk about this. I mean, I think the most cogent and sort of, you know, articulate way of discussing this particular dilemma is in, a, in an essay called The Power of the Powerless by Václav Havel. Uh, you know, he talks about the fruit vendor who puts his little flag mm -hmm. on his you know, fruit stand that says workers of the world unite. And he makes a joke, you know, well, there's nothing wrong with that. But like, it's not, that's not what it symbolizes. Um, what, what would happen one day if he were to just sort of take that flag down and throw it in the trash can or, or get rid of it? Um, you know, suddenly his kid couldn't go to college. Now, I'm not suggesting that, you know, everyone of us should be, you know, I guess a way to describe it is cowards. But at the same time, though, you know, there are a lot of different calculations that people make, and they make it oftentimes based on the information that's provided to them. And when you're, you know, mainstream media is filled with propaganda, um, and you're, or you're, I think I'll, I'll talk about the United States. In the United States, if, you, if you're remotely political and you don't live in California or New York, and political in a way that's outside of the mainstream, and and I mean I include New York and 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 California in that. You know, you 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 can actually prevent yourself from being employable in the market. You know, you know, especially now with social media and 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 background checks on on people and you know and their sort of online habits. There are all these kinds of things that affect people uh, every day and the choices that they make. Right. For sure. Yeah. I'm curious, Alexa, have you, I'm assuming you've probably read uh, James Risen's book, Panty Price, or did you check that I out? I haven't. I had, it's in my, I have 15 books before that that I have to read. <laughs> well, he goes over the concept of the, he, he, I mean, the whole, the book's theme that continues to come up again and again throughout it is just this idea of the terrorism gold rush and how, you know, regardless of the morality of a lot of these sort of post 9-11 things, you know, like the Patriot Act and all those things, all the things that came out of them, like the Homeland Security industry, you know, on the government side, and then on the private side, you had all these industries sort of coming up around it. It just seems like that alone makes a lot of those things so much more irreversible because these industries sort of thrive off of them now. I think you're absolutely and right. You know, I was, in, I was in Berlin earlier in the year and I went to this panel and it was kind of actually, a, I'm going to be sort of honest, it was sort of a ridiculous panel for me. <laughs> the panel was, and I don't mean any disrespect, I really don't, but the panel was discussing digital culture. And, you know, the topic included sort of the militarization of the internet. You know, I travel across the United States, and, and really I do, like I am... You know, I'm in Tennessee every couple of months. I, you know, have family in Seattle. I live in New York. I grew up bicoastally. You know, I went to school in Ohio. I, I, I'm all over the place all the time. So I talk to people in my day, you know, my friends, my family, people that I work with, etc. And most of America, in, in the middle of America, you know, in small towns, what do people do when they want to get some upward social mobility? They join the military.
No manufacturing in America. I mean, there are certainly pockets of it. But when you see, like, if you drive through West Virginia, you know, which where the FBI, like, information facilities are and their cyber, you know, facilities are, uh, what you see are enormous, like, uh, satellites. There are special forces places in Ohio. You see either the law enforcement or the military intelligence providing these areas with jobs. And so, so much of this is really an economic issue as much as it is a political one. Yeah. I mean, all these, all these uh, people supporting politicians like John McCain and stuff, I mean, partly because they probably work in the industry, you know, I mean, in Arizona, there's huge databases and stuff like that, training facilities. Um, You spent a lot of time at uh, Chelsea Manning's trial. You were, uh, I mean, you were one of the most meticulous, I mean, relaying, digesting information on a day-to-day basis, just grueling hours there. How did it feel to be thanked publicly by Chelsea herself in one of her first tweets? Um, um, it feels good. I mean, uh, you know, it feels good. And I, at the same time, though, I mean, obviously, um, I, I think that she she deserves that support. I don't certainly have any expectations that she thanked mm-hmm. But it it felt good. Is that Chelsea like relaying her her thoughts over like the phone to someone who's tweeting, or is she, you know, how exactly that's being interfaced with Twitter? I'm assuming she's not using Twitter from jail. No, she's or not because she's not on internet okay. access, and um, she's also, um, you know, she has prohibitions. There are military prison prohibitions in the army against how someone like uh, Chelsea can actually interact with with the public and press. So what she's doing, as far as I understand it, is she's speaking to Trevor Fitzgibbons of Fitzgibbons Media, who apparently is her PR person. Okay. On the phone, and I don't know how um, you know how he's relaying what's coming back to her, um, but you know, obviously there's some kind of communication between the two. But um, I'm being told that, uh, as 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 is the public, that um, that these are coming directly from her verbatim. Okay. That's, awesome. That's good to know. We we started talking over Twitter because I was curious about the the Garani massacre video, but I wanted to lead into that by just asking you about is there anything that Chelsea Manning leaked besides the collateral murder video and the the Afghan war logs and the and the there was a few other big leaks that were sort of you know these were the Chelsea Manning leaks. Um, was was there anything else that you know, that you would consider big and important that, that she, she leaked, uh, that didn't really get much media attention. Well, I don't know what, whether it got media attention or not, because it's such a massive leak of documents, um, that, and they're so global in perspective that what might have not gotten media attention in Des Moines, Iowa, got a lot of media attention in Nigeria. Um, and I'm talking in that case about state department cables about, uh, Exxon essentially infiltrating the Nigerian government. So it, I think that depends. In terms of like what leaks did she admit to um, providing WikiLeaks that weren't published? The Guarani air vi- uh, airstrike video from May 2009, a U.S. cluster bombing, wasn't published. And the documents related to the mass casualties from that uh, called the FARA documents, those weren't published by WikiLeaks. Uh, she also said in her statement when she pled to 10 lesser included offenses that she had actually uploaded information about 15 Iraqi detainees that were arrested at a printing press. Um, 
and it sort of it was more in line with sort of the the way in which uh, the prime minister of Iraq, um, uh, Nouri al-Malikai, was basically um, using sort of Shia intelligence services to uh, eliminate his political opposition uh, during the election at that time. So she uploaded information about these 15 scholars who were arrested for printing anti-Iraqi literature that turned out to be, in fact, like a scholarly treatise on public corruption in Iraq. Um, and I'm trying to think what else was there. Um, there were also other documents that that I know about just through the court record, like that maybe there isn't a lot of publicity towards. There was um, some intelligence reports on WikiLeaks, like at the Chaos Computer Club uh, Congress uh, in 2008 or 2009. Those were also uploaded. And one other report on WikiLeaks that never got published. The Garani Massacre uh, video just seems totally insane because, I mean, I mean, talk about what that entailed and, and why you think that that never got an immediate play. I know that the video was never released, but even just what it revealed. Yeah, you know, this is this this is a really important video. And in fact, this is a video that a lot of the press and the public were clamoring for because because of the reports at the time by Human Rights Watch and other organizations of the massive casualties, especially of women and children. And Petraeus had said at the time that he was going to release the video, but he never did. And Manning did actually upload the video in April, uh, according to like, you know, the trial sort of uh, fact finder. Um, it looks like WikiLeaks might have had possession of a similar video or related video in November that Manning didn't upload. Um, you know, at trial, the government tried to insinuate that she uploaded it in November to build this kind of like conspiracy that she was like leaking from the minute she hit Baghdad, but that wasn't true. And anyway, so this video has never been released. Um, according to testimony at her trial, the and even Manning's own statements, collateral murder was definitely more horrible to look at. This video, the one that Manning uploaded, looks like a um, a flight over air or a flight over air over the battle space. That's all that, that it was described as. Um, so you know, more will be revealed. So presumably, the video it, it might have shown the scope of the Grani massacre, but it might have been just from like a higher vantage point perhaps that wasn't maybe as graphic because the collateral murder video seemed like it was a pretty, you know, it was high resolution enough where you could see things pretty clearly. Right. Uh, you're talking also about a helicopter, like an Apache mm -hmm. helicopter, yeah. collateral murder. And then with this one, it's cluster bombs. So it's whatever kind of aircraft would drop cluster bombs, probably not a helicopter. <laughs> I see. Yeah. <laughs> and would, could you go into, I've, I've tried to, you know, I've seen Julian Assange um, explain how that, you know, what eventually happened to that video, but I, I felt like you had a better explanation of it um, or you, you understood it much better than I did. So would you mind like explaining what, you know, what the story is behind why that video never actually came out? Well, based on public statements. Um, so Manning uploaded this video in April and, you know, the according to the chat logs between um, her and Adrian Lamo, as well as her statement, her formal statement at, at, at trial. So she uploaded it along with um, the FARA documents. So these are briefings that were you know, given to Petraeus 
about the mass casualties happening in um, you know, happening with US, by U.S. forces. So what's interesting here is why did Manning leak this? I mean, there's a rationale for every single release. Manning um, knew that there was an internal policy conflict. And actually, interestingly enough, the nation, um, Bob Dreyfus at The Nation wrote after her trial in September 2013, never mentioning Manning, describing this policy uh, conflict in the nation. Um, there's a piece called Mass Casualty Attacks in the Afghan War. Um, and it's a recounting of three horrific, you know, uh, U.S., uh, civilian massacres, the procedure implemented to prevent such events from happening and why those procedures were inadequate. So there was this internal policy uh, conflict about like how to handle the mass casualties. And in fact, what was happening was people were sort of so much up in arms about it that they actually sort of refused to follow the orders at all that were given. So there was a lot of that going on. And, and Manning really released this um, in order for the public to sort of see the ef causal effects, the third, you know, the third order effects of mm -hmm. this kinds of this kind of incompetence and inefficiency. So, so there was some internal uh, arguments about about the policies along with the videos that do I understand that correctly? Yes. So she she included both. Uh, you know, Petraeus briefings called the Farah documents, which we, she was convicted for under the Espionage Act. We never seen them. There were roughly like 10 to 14 of those documents dating from the same time. And then the video. Not, I see. Okay. Neither got published. Now, according to WikiLeaks, um, they, these, these, this material was taken by Dom Scheidberg, um, Daniel Schmidt, uh, Daniel Domscheit-Berg, um, who was an employee of WikiLeaks, who had a falling out with Assange and left. And apparently when he when he left, he took this material and destroyed it. Okay. Um, but and that's, oh, sorry, go I ahead. I just want to tell you one other interesting point is along with the um, documents in the video, forensic uh, government forensic examiners said that there were hundreds of pictures of the burn victim Manning's computer. And that's how they kind of knew that she had actually uploaded this. This is part of this. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. So there yeah, are photos that exist as well. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you have to imagine, I mean, there's, there's gotta be, you know, documentation of a lot of that stuff that's just internally circulating. That's probably, you know, right. never right. released, but that's yeah. That's that's really interesting information. I mean, like, just so. the Abu Ghraib photos alone, we'll never see those. I thought Obama was supposed to release those. I think he well, ordered. He, he was a he made an announcement that he was going to release them when he first got into office, but then he reversed. Right, but then I, I thought correctly. that he was. Alexa, do you know anything about that? Yeah, the court a court just ordered him to release them. It came out like two right. Years ago. Are these the same ones that he was talking about releasing when he first got into office? Um, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Um, how do you feel that Chelsea's been treated just in the, in the mainstream media um, compared to Edward Snowden? Um, this is a kind of complicated and nuanced answer. Uh, I think actually when I talk to journalists at, you know, mainstream publications, I won't say their names, obviously, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, all over the United States, you know, at the major papers of record, there is a certain kind of um, understanding that many of them have about the release. And I think that, you know, the work 
the hard work that we did really trying to cover her trial when it wasn't being covered paid off because by the time she made her statement, there was a greater clarity about the facts in general, you know, related to her releases. Low level intelligence, we're talking about essentially the Encyclopedia Britannica type of releases. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, many of this, much of this material was widely disseminated amongst at least, you know, in the case of the State Department cables, a million, um, I'm sorry, half a million U.S. government employees and federal contractors. So this is not top secret, closely held, compartmentalized material like Mr. Snowden leaked. Um, I have to tell you that I was probably more shocked by this sort of you know, rushed and whether intentional or unintentional sort of statements by people who really should have known better about, you know, using terms like, well, you know, Snowden didn't dump material and, you know, Mm -hmm. Snowden was more responsible. I take issue with those statements because I know for a fact that, um, that it's just, it just can't be true. Um, when you compare them really. Um, and so, in terms of how has the media responded to her, I think that people will naturally find themselves seeking to understand Manning because she's incredibly earnest. And and that was very powerful, I think, at her trial when media did get to actually see her. They saw here was a very thoughtful, reasoned, young person who, you know, I actually... You know, I actually heard sort of, you know, sort of on the background kind of that even people like Michael Hayden are like, you know, uh, really um, Manning, you know, Manning certainly, you know, didn't really do anything that was that damaging. Um, Of course, you know, there are other statements by, uh, you know, insiders that they might disagree because they have a sort of special interest. Uh, Certainly, I think when it comes to national security leaks, here we are five years on. Manning was only charged under the Espionage Act for 247 documents. And when you really interrogate those documents, you really can see that, you know, any kind of damage was situational. It was temporary and it's now done. Um, I mean, more will be revealed. Uh, but I, I think so that I think that there's on the one hand, I think there's a kind of understanding and a kind of um, a, a reasonable approach now that the propaganda has sort of died down with Manning. And hopefully now we can actually look at this in a much more reasonable way. I think with um, with Snowden, I mean, it depends on also what media we're talking about. Um, I think that Snowden is a very divisive character in the United States. I'm talking about in the United States, of course. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, people, because he leaked signals intelligence, even though he uncovered uh, wrongdoing and crimes, there is a sort of sense of like, then why did you leak NATO information? And I think people have been sympathetic towards him. I mean, certain communities are very sympathetic towards him. Um, I think, uh, I think there's just like a lot, a lot of questions still about him. I mean, like what? Well, um, I'm talking about just, you know, in in my sort of day-to-day sort of exchanges with people. I think people don't understand why he leaked everything that he leaked. I think a lot of people don't understand um, basically – they don't understand really the facts around his access to things and his methodology about going about and and getting the documents, Mm -hmm. Um, you know – 
obviously he's a systems administrator, but a lot of people don't know that. They don't understand necessarily like, you know, why he would leak information about military movements if he's in, in, interested in sort of, you know, um, basically um, leaking about, you know, uh, mass surveillance and Pfizer related matters. Um, I think also like there's a sort of difficulty here for the U.S. government as well, because fundamentally they don't like to prosecute signals intelligence uh, leakers or spies uh, because the material that you would end up using in a court would be of higher classification than the material that was leaked, if that's even possible. And so I think that there's a bit of a kind of quandary. I think with Manning, because Manning was in the military, um, it, it, it's, it's so complicated. I mean, I'll, I'll give you another mm -hmm. story. I'm kind of going off in a couple different directions. Manning was in the military, so Manning couldn't get away, so to speak. Right. I think there is, in a certain sense, now that there's been a trial, there's a kind of sense of like, okay, the trial's over. Was it a fair trial? In a certain sense. And now we have an official record because we fought for that official record. You can begin to sort of reinvestigate. And it's five years on, so you can't really say, well, you know, how much damage was actually done? Um, you know, there's a sort of the, the benefit of time. I think with Snowden, you're still sort of in the thick of it. Um, and because it signals intelligence and because the, I, I think the media can be very, very divisive at this point still with him. Um, the other thing, too, with Manning that's interesting is Manning's appeal is going to be the most sort of like solid challenge of the Espionage Act that we actually have. Really? Yes. So you're going to find around the appeal that the media is going to be very, very interested in sort of seeing what happens there, because it's really the only solid thing we can put our teeth into that could possibly challenge the Espionage Act. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Interesting. So I, I guess there was another side of this that I was interested to hear your thoughts on, but uh, there's been critics of, I guess, Gre Greenwald and Snowden that, you know, that are not critics of, of Manning that have said things like, well, you know, there's sort of this impression that Snowden will give in his interviews that he did things responsibly, whereas Chelsea did not. And I'm just wondering if you think that that's sort of a fair characterization of, of sort of how, what, you know, what Snowden and Greenwald are going around saying, or if you don't think that that's think sort of really, exists at all. I really think it's bullshit to tell you the truth. I mean, yeah. that's the most honest thing I can say. I really think it's bullshit. I think the accusation, the accusation, I mean, whether or not Greenwald says it or not, I mean, he did say some pretty, like I said, you know, hasty and irresponsible things about Manning. Um, Manning did thank him yesterday. So, I mean, you know, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, that is what it is. I, I have to say that, um, you know, personally on a sort of like a personal level, I, and this is it, honestly, I don't expect anybody to really care, but I just have a kind of aversion to highly manufactured um, uh, approaches to the media. And, you know, for good or ill, I mean, obviously, you know, Socrates took an earnest, well, one could say he didn't, you know, earnest approach with the Athenian mob and they ended up giving him hemlock. <laughs> so, like, like, I'm not <laughs> suggesting that, that it's a good strategy, but I think there's a lot of power in it. And I think there's a lot of political power in it, especially when you, um, and there's a humility in it. And I, so that's my sort of whole, that's the angle I'm coming at this with. In terms of like the, the, the whole Snowden versus Manning thing, I, I regret those statements they made early on 
because I felt like it was really at the expense of Manning and it wasn't actually accurate, precise or true. They, they seem to have taken steps back from that, um, meaning, you know, you see Greenwald sort of and Snowden kind of coming forward and sort of expressing solidarity towards Manning. Um, I think Manning personally, just maybe it's because I've, I've followed her so closely at the trial, but I really think she's an extraordinary character because of her earnestness. It's really incredible. And when you realize the kinds of risks and consequences she was facing and the fact that she, you know, requested that only fact-based textual documents be published on her lawyer's site and that, you know, everything be neutral and reasonable, and you see how methodical and scientific she is, you realize that there really is no posing with Manning. She sort of is who she is. And I think that's why her humanity shines through so deeply. I, I remember seeing a video I think it was actually you in Berlin maybe being interviewed um, by somebody about um, how you felt about the, you know, the Pierre Omidyar uh, first look media venture. And that was, I think it was probably over a year ago that I remember seeing you talking about that. And you brought up a lot of really good points. Um, you made me think a lot about it. And I'm just wondering if your feelings have changed since, or if you more or less feel the same and, um, if you want to go over some of those feelings again, or people could, you know, go look up the interview. But um, what are your feelings now just, about it? You know what it is? It's more about me. I mean, I'm talking about myself and I'm talking about journalists like me. I really want to be able to engage from where I'm at in the public house. And I really want to be able to uh, not have my contribution be taxed by extra legal financial blockades. If I say something that happens to provoke the government or, you know, commercial interests to come after me. Now, maybe that's a bit of um, maybe that's a bit of a dream. I mean, maybe political economy is where power is, you know, and you have to be rich in order to have freedom. I mean, maybe that's just the way it is. Um, I do, however, wish that we would approach these kinds of discussions with a little bit more uh, intellectual honesty. Instead of pretending that the First Amendment just applies to everyone and speak your mind, we talk about what it really means to speak your mind. And what are we talking about here? Are we talking about speaking your mind with no consequences or is it always a risk? Or, you know, in the case of um, a first look and the like, I mean, this is an individual who's the chair of eBay. PayPal is wholly owned by eBay. Um, they enacted... Uh, you know, to protect their fiduciary interest, a extra legal financial blockade against an independent publisher. And this is like barely broached in any kind of intelligent or deeply thoughtful way when the questions were raised. And instead, what happened was there was this kind of rush to shut everyone up or try to hire them as soon as, you know, before they open their mouth. And I think that it's unfair to the millions of people out there who deserve to be able to express themselves or develop niches or communities of subject matter experts in order to create a, a vibrant and healthy ecosystem that ultimately fundamentally is the pillar of, of any kind of free government you could hope to have. Educated, yeah. thoughtful people. So for me, it's like I'm more interested in protecting my own you know, stake in the ground. I don't want to have to defer to some celebrity or uh, you know, opinion maker in order to be able to cover something or have at least a modicum of dignity and respect to raise funds if the government comes after me for doing so. 
Right. You know, and, and, and if we're not going to at least, okay, there will always be big shots and big players. There just always will because power centralizes. The question is, is like how much of our, how many niche communities do we have now, you know, five years after 210? How is the public debate uh, occurring? Do you have a lot of voices or is it just sort of two or three sort of main kind of ideological sort of angles coming to battle? You know, and what happens in that kind of environment? Are you are people asking questions, and are those answers being given? And I, right. don't, I don't see that happening as much now as it did five years ago, and maybe that's because there's there was a sort of an opening out, and then we're, there's a closing down that's happening now. I would like to maintain and build something that is more than just an NGO system of 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 press. I want to I want to create and participate in a realistic and authentic human conversation about the polis. I think that this all bleeds into another problem, which is all of the stuff about spying is super central on the government uh, as well. It should be, but I mean, we're living in a corporatocracy. We have a, an apparatus that's working in conjunction with each other, the private sector and the government sector. So is too much of the surveillance conversation focused on government spying? I mean, do you think that, there should be more on corporate surveillance and talk about just this intersection of the tech Silicon Valley and security industrial complex. I think I, I definitely think there should be more, but I, you know, more than anything else, I would like to, de- to precisely define the landscape. It, you know, what I mean to say is I think that it's helpful when you're able to have journalists or, or writers or bloggers or whomever help to define the landscape of the world we actually live in. Who, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It really, you find ground. And when you find ground, you can find solutions to a host of ills uh, when you find ground personally or politically. Okay, so that's that's what I would like. Secondly, mm-hmm. I think that what you're saying is really critically important here. And it's a juxtaposition of a couple of things that I've been sort of working on. The, the first thing is that, you know, people say, well, Twitter can't hand you a subpoena, you know, or Twitter can't put you in jail. Well, when the FBI criminal manual suggests that law enforcement agents use choice point to gather intelligence on a suspicious person or a suspect. Um, you know, I, I beg to differ when, um, when the CIA science and technology directorate is spending more money on data heuristics and indexing the open source web or internet, um, you know, I, I, and, 80 to 90 percent of intelligence used by the intelligence community, the U.S. intelligence, is open source. Um, you know, I don't think it's as simple as Twitter can't give you a subpoena. I mean, secondly, mm-hmm. I think that what you see the sort of the the political forces around Snowden, amassing around Snowden, also all seem to be Silicon Valley firms. I mean, and, and what I mean to say is I'm speaking very loosely here. And, and this probably deserves much more, um, um, much more precision in one speak. What I mean to say is that when you have companies like First Look that's owned by a publisher like, um, you know, uh, or that's owned, you know, 10% is owned by someone like Pierre, or you have mm-hmm. um, Bezos and the Washington Post, you know, you start to see that they're also very worried about their their bottom line. And so there is also the threat of libel that you get in generally with just, you know, commercial enterprises. If you start to attack them, they'll sue you till you're bankrupt. And then secondly, for publishing people. And then secondly, you have this sort of like, you know, compromise happening 
where, okay, we'll protect U.S. industry, but we won't really reveal, you know, everything that's going on. And all the while, there's a confusion about where the line is between government and there isn't a line, by the way. The relationship is so inter- right. interwoven now. It's, it's, it, it actually, you know, you even find that uh, it, it, it's a symbiotic relationship. I mean, they, they exist with each other. Um, and they probably don't exist without each other. That brings me to organizations like the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Um, I, I remember they originally, you know, got a lot of press for themselves when they were fighting the lawsuit um, that was originally, you know, uh, I don't, I think Mark Klein's whistleblowing basically started rolling the ball on the, you know, original um, NSA spying revelations. And that sort of led to um, this this lawsuit that the FF is still mounting against the the federal government, but you know there's been some sort of recent odd contradictions, such as the EFF taking money from Google, and now we've sort of been hearing rumors that they have an internal policy that they look away from sort of the the corporate side of surveillance, and their focus now is all sort of NSA surveillance. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts were on that, if you you know, if there are other privacy organizations which you would recommend people look at instead, or if you think the EFF um, can still maintain its credibility even from taking Google grants, what are your thoughts? I think, <laughs> well, I think we live in an enormous court. And, you know, I think these are, I mean, I think these are sort of these eternal sort of political issues. I think we live, I want to just say this. This is, um, what do I think about it? I think that it sucks that, you know, uh, people have to struggle to be free. <laughs> That's what I'm, okay. um, you know, and I, I, I wish it was easier, but maybe that's impossible. Um, I want to say this, this whole issue of encryption to me and, you know, speaking truth to power is an interesting one because, you know, it's always dangerous to speak truth to power. It really is. It's always been dangerous. Like, if you look at, like, the history of, like, ancient philosophers, they used to, well, some people argue, that they used to hide their sort of real thinking in, like, esotericism. <laughs> that only, like, certain types of people who could read sort of, like, their contradictions. Like, for example, if you read, like, um, you read Livy and you read, like, Machiavelli, you see that Machiavelli lies all the time. You know, he talks about battles that never existed or... You know, and, and you have to be a careful reader. And then if you're a careful reader, then you can know what the philosopher, so to speak, is really thinking. And I think that encryption is really just a democratization of that. It's like an exoteric form of hiding your real thinking from people who would wish to harm you if they found out that they can't control you. And I, so I, I think that part of this political dilemma has always existed um, to, to the human being. Now, of course... It's a little bit different now because um, in a certain way, because we have certain sort of uh, expectations or certain ideas about who and what we are as a people. Um, but uh, so for me, I wonder if like if, you know, instead of me just sort of getting here and, and crapping on EFF, because I'm sure that the people at EFF are trying to do the best that they can in their own way. Um, if we actually like really draw out what what's the real dilemma here? 
Yeah. I mean, the dilemma is that these organizations need money from Google. I mean, that's just like people have to work for Russia today to get the truth out about certain things. I mean, the problem becomes when they don't cover Google. And I and I'm I, I actually don't know. I, I don't know if they have or haven't. Um, but yeah, I mean, these are all fundamental philosophical questions that we need to ask ourselves. And I think the encryption point is, is a very good one. Um, it reminds me of the that improvisational artist in Russia who like purposefully inserts paradoxes <laughs> to make just the political reality so confusing to people. Um, and this is just like a political strategy that's happened for a while, right? Uh, let's talk about Hollywood also, because I know that you've been working on on the intersection between American entertainment exports, gaming, Hollywood film industry, the military industrial complex, um, beyond just Hollywood movies being given like Pentagon equipment for free and shit to consult on the scripts. Um, what other harmful insidious ways does, does this kind of intersection of industries do? Hey, you know, Abby, before I talk about that, can I just respond mm-hmm. to something that you just said? Yeah. I want to make sure that I'm not like that. I'm, I'm, I'm saying what I mean and I'm meaning what I say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not just about intellectual masturbation. I, I, I think for me, like it's really about also bringing it back down to one's own reality. Like for me, for example, you know, I've found myself over the last few years, especially, you know, but having to sort of like walk a lot of lines between like, you know, having private intelligence contractors find my suddenly becoming interesting to them while trying to basically work as a working person, you know, covering a trial where in the beginning, the AP, you know, almost a reporter almost walked away when I was threatened with arrest at, at, at Fort Meade because, you know, I was a quote unquote blogger, you know, and then at the end came up to me and was like, why didn't you mention me at, the panel that you did because, you know, I've been here for five months. So like, (laughs) so like there's this like weird kind of, you know, so for me, I have to say that these kinds of decisions are certainly ideological and I can project them outward, but they're also ultimately personal decisions that we all kind of make. It's the kind of decisions that Chelsea Manning made. And I Mm -hmm. think fundamentally that it comes down to like, this might sound like kind of hokey and corny, but I, this is what I believe. You know, you cannot have a virtuous society without virtuous people. If you, you can't have a strong and intelligent society without strong and intelligent people, you just can't make something out of nothing. And that in life, there are limitations and everyone has them. Well, some people have no limitations except for maybe death. Um, you know, the really wealthy people, but like, you know, fundamentally, there are limitations and we all have to find that that thing that we can do. And it's 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 something that takes a certain level of balance, too, because, you know, it, to, to pretend that the human experience and going through these kinds of things of like stepping out on a ledge or is not somehow mm-hmm. doesn't have like with it consequences that that will be felt is to pretend that 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 it isn't difficult to leak 750,000 documents, that it doesn't take courage. Do you know what I mean? Or that yeah. it doesn't, it, it's to pretend somehow that, that, that uh, to create a recipe. And, and I think that there's a danger in that also because it creates this sort of environment where everybody's trying to show their, um, their, uh, their, their, their re- revolutionary credentials. I mean, just look at the weathermen and listen to like them talk, you know, 20 or 30 years onward. 
about like the problems that they had with originally that that morphed into like creating a lot of havoc for themselves and for other people. And I'm not just talking about whether it's violence or nonviolence because that's a separate issue, but just simply the the intellectual dishonesty they had with each other about trying to prove the revolutionary credentials. And funny enough, I mean, most of these kids were white middle class kids who wanted to be like black liberation radicals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they ended up just basically, you know, imploding from within. And I think that a lot of that's happening right now, too, sort of in a, in a way in this kind, these kinds of discussions around freedom, uh, freedom of thought and liberation. That's a very good point you raise. Yeah, you just you just raised a lot of really great points. I just read this article on The Guardian by George Monbiot, I think his name is. I love that guy. Um, but he just wrote about how just how inverted our like moral and value system is and, and what jobs actually get rewarded and how it basically just like our economic structure is set up where the most sociopathic, sycophantic, like generic assholes rise to the top and all the people who are like empathic and you know are helping people like home care workers i mean they're treated like shit they're paid nothing and so naturally you'll see the more like intellectual class just falling prey to succumbing to whatever the role is that society will give them that will make them survive i mean and it just it goes down to the fundamental question i mean as someone who was also an organizing with u.s day of rage and seeing the podemos party and Sariza succeed abroad based on a lot of these same principles. I mean, are we talking about just a very fundamental value shift in this country? And why do you think it's because we're just so new? Um, I mean, I know it's just a huge fucking philosophical question there. Is I always bring it back to home. I mean, maybe it's like, yeah, come from. I mean, my family's not really one that's very like uh, there, there. There's a very my family's very, very down to earth. And anybody who like floats too high gets knocked down really fast. It's some kind of weird dynamic that it's a it's a good dynamic. I I, I love I am so grateful for where I come from, but it, it's kind of like a practicality that always sort of in, interplays, and and that I think comes out in the way that I live my life, which is fundamentally when it comes to the Manning trial or the work that I do. Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, it's these are personal decisions that I make, and it's not to say that I don't think that. Um, what, what, what I wish more is intellectual honesty about uh, the lay of the land politically. Mm-hmm. And, and anybody who doesn't want to talk about it, I think, is either scared or they're hiding something. Okay, so I think that that is fundamentally the role of public information. It's like, for example, in a family or in a polis, you know, gossip is great. But gossip like only gets you so far or exaggeration. It's like, let's try to be precise about stuff. Um, That's the approach I take. That might sound like a little sort of cheesy for this kind of format, but what the hell, you know, you only live once. The other thing too, (laughs) um, the other thing too I want to say is about like the role between entertainment and defense. You know, one of the things I've always been interested in before I covered the Manning trial was covering the relationship between the entertainment sector and the defense sector, and not just simply in terms of propaganda, because, I mean, anybody nowadays in the information age understands the role, or most people uh, maybe that we would talk to understand about, you know, uh, Al Jazeera and CNN and Russia Today and the kind of spheres of influence that those kinds of um, information houses have over large populations. Um, 
But what interests me really is how the processors in the PS2 drive the development of those processors on the digital battlefield, or how the lenses, you, you know, the largest growth sector for Panavision, which is an American manufacturer of movie cameras, is for lensing uh, for target and weapon systems. Um, so those break that down. Break that down for the layman. Okay. So Panavision is an American movie com- a movie camera company. Uh, they produce other film equipment or equipment you would use to make films or make television. Um, but you know they're sort of the premier American movie camera. And you know they produced film cameras, and then with the onset of digital cinema, where you had like a lot of like information you could pack into a digital image. You know, it's more than like VHS and electronic mm-hmm. from the '90s. They produce now like digital cinematography cameras. Well, in 2006, I mean, their largest uh, growth in their sort of production of, of these cameras, design and production of these, of these cameras and lenses is in federal contracts. So basically, they'll have a contract with the Department of Defense um, or the federal government or wh- whatever branch to, to basically <clears throat> either build or design lenses for targeting and weapons systems and not movie cameras. Wow. So, yeah, and then you have like, PS2s, like the consoles. This is something that um, maybe more geeky people knew about. But the processors, you couldn't even um, you couldn't even ship this, you know, console outside, you know, certain co- to certain countries because the processors are so powerful, and you know, their uses are 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 on the digital battlefield. So the development is really fun. The research and development is funded by the entertainment market. But its applications are multi-applications, including the digital battlefield. So, for example, um, if you have to send, like, really high-resolution satellite imagery, you would need a processor like this. Or if you um, are using any kind of, like, imagery or on on the digital, quote-unquote, digital battlefield. um, Like simulations or things like that. Yes, exactly. Well, this is all very interesting stuff. I mean, I'm... I have some familiarity with it, but I'm, I come from more of a sound engineering background. So I've known for a long time that this, one of the most famous, um, companies to do sound for movies, this company called Nagra, I don't know if you're familiar with them. They were, you know, they primarily were the ones who were, you know, giving, uh, or supplying, I should say, sound equipment to Hollywood to do like on, you know, um, on location recording of, of dialogue and sound. But they were also um, one of the biggest, or the, probably at the time, the only company that made um, tape recorders that the CIA would use. They made the only small enough reel-to-reel tape recorder that you could, I guess, hide or conceal you know, on your body. Um, so that's just kind of an interesting historical relationship, I mean, that existed in a totally different industry. Um, but yeah, this whole idea of like the PS2 chips is really fascinating, and I don't know if you remember this, but when the the Apple uh, Macintosh G4 processor uh, first came out, there was a commercial where the basically the commercial was bragging. Apple was bragging that these processors are so powerful that the U.S. military has classified it as a weapon, and they were like tank driving <laughs> up to the chip, um, sort of in the middle of this big white room. And I mean, what other examples of that are there? I mean, there's like the you know there's the Xbox Connect which is sort of the first implementation in a, in a mainstream sense of like a 3D room laser scanner, um, you know, which has, there's a whole lot of privacy surveillance uh, issues that come along with that. But what are some other examples of just a sort of intersection of video game processing or, you know, entertainment computing with, um, that's, with that's military? Actually a, 
that's a really good example because there was an during this it, for the Snowden leaks. I mean, there was a whole um, controversy over whether or not those webcams were actually loaded with um, with you know their settings on, so that you know law enforcement was using gaming. Uh, infrastructure, technology infrastructure, as well as software to basically spy on um, suspects. Um, and so, you know, I think it's really hard to discuss these kinds of topics because we are media. I mean, every single one of us, I mean, we talk about journalism. Um, and I do think that there is a skill and a trade of journalism. I really do. I mean, I have like great respect for journalists like Will Arkin. I think that over many years they've developed, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, a certain sort of vetting process of how they, you know, how they vet sources and how they, you know, shape information um, so that, you know, it's accurate or how they amass or collect or aggregate and then d um, digest that information for the public. I mean, I do think that that's a skill set. So without like demeaning other people's experience, I do think that most of us today, you know, we engage through media. I mean, Facebook has completely corporatized and financialized our relationships. Um, Interestingly enough, I and mean, we were talking earlier before about um, advertising, corporatocracy, and the media. I mean, it's so funny because literally the internet and internet journalism is built on a type of surveillance. You know, tracking cookies and um, being able to sort of like identify who you are and what you, so they can be served up, you know, advertising is, a, is surveillance. I mean, it's it's. It's a it's a definitely a type of surveillance, and then and and as that information is collected into information clearinghouses, you know, and passed on to law enforcement, this line between the media and us is so blurred. And then let's not just pretend that all of us don't like to be looked at because we live in like the most voyeuristic society probably ever. I mean, we want to be safe. Yeah. And so that actually complicates it too because there's the whole aspect of relating to people as spectacles. Yeah, I've always I've always thought it was interesting how, you know, we think that we've evolved so much from like the Roman times. I mean, yeah, we don't have vomitoriums and mass orgies out in the public, but look at like movies like Saw and Hostel. It's like we still need to see, you know, like uh, people dying and getting tortured. And it's like this bizarre human condition. I don't even know if that's just like completely separate from what you're talking about. <laughs> well, the is, I guess the question is, is where does that come from? What is mm -hmm. that? In human mm -hmm. beings, because human beings actually do have the 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 the, 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 the sadistic qualities to them. So, what what is it about us, and what is it about democracies in general? Or, I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't call ourselves a democracy, but just to use right. that very like loosely, what is it about democracies and traitors? They love traitors. I mean, I was joking around like recently, you know, when um, everybody in Congress was a traitor and, you know, Manning's a traitor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just throwing that word around, right? Like, so fucking loaded. I wanted to point out just this one line that you wrote because it's just really, really amazing. And I want you to expand upon what you meant by it. Um, you said the ideology of democratic liberalism acts as a mask of the U.S. regime in its own theater of cruelty. Uh, talk about that. Well, you know, for me, I mean, I, 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 it's a, it's a sort of coalescing of a couple of ideas. I mean, I happen to believe that much of U.S. foreign policy is racist. You know, and I, I see it even amongst people that I would call friends or associates. You know, when maybe they're not into the things that I'm into, and they'll talk about the war on terror or the people at Guantanamo Bay or ISIS, 
and just be like, you know, I'll bomb those people or blah, blah, blah. And so there's this there's this underlying sort of uh, racism that has always underlied America's domestic and foreign policy. And so that's one aspect. I think also it's just this this myth of, you know, uh, uh, well, our media is an is a sort of a, a a field of spectacles, and we talk a lot about these really important sort of ideas in kind of talking points and in um, in sort of spectacles. And in that way, we also uh, we engage in it in a sort of cathartic way. So there's an element of theater to it. I mean, if you look at bombings like um, you know, shock and awe, which much like mm-hmm. the, I, mean, I, I read a great essay. I wish I knew the author so I could tell you uh, talking about how ISIS has essentially co-opted American propaganda in their videos of their horrific videos, where you know you have this kind of magnification of. A, a projection of power. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, really yeah. So, so th- this automatism is, is what I was talking about before about that line of complicity that really runs through each of us. And, you know, we can talk about the Politburo as being the tyrants, but really it's a million other transactions too, that we make with that society mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis. And it's not just about like, don't eat, you know, meat or although those are, those are legitimate and incredible choices or don't do this or don't do that. It's really also about, um, you know, finding one's own. I mean, this is, you know, once again, like, uh, you know, it's also really about listening to one's conscience and of course. Yeah. And, 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 this sort of blind automatism is also even within, you know, the sort of quote unquote activist circles. It's just like, you know, just not really being a thinking person in those in, in, in just engaging in like rhetoric that is empty rhetoric. It means nothing. Right. It's just really like listening and thinking. That's just something, you know, for me, that's important, I think, because I think it brings balance and stability. And I think it also brings um, the kinds of things that one would want to have, whether it's personally or, or in in the polis. Yeah, and holding yourself accountable. I think that's the biggest challenge that we have in our lives is is shutting down our own ego and realizing that we need to be accountable for ourselves and we can't keep projecting blame for like our, you know, our movements, failures and everything. We need to step up and really understand um, how to do that on a, on a better level, Alexa, because it's really, it's just shocking. I mean, really just seeing so much infighting everywhere. Um, and it's just really like stunting so much growth that we could be making. You know, when I talk to people like in my day to day life, I mean, what I hear and, and maybe I'm wrong because I'm not like, you know, conducting a sort of scientific survey or anything like that. But what I hear is people want to be able to live decent lives. They want to be decent people. And sometimes they feel like they can't be decent people. You really, I mean, that sounds like kind of ridiculous a little bit, but I mean it. Like, I think there's there are some people who would like to just. I'm I'm one of those people who would just like to live a decent life. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. you know because of the rewards of of that. And you know, I'm not I'm not suggesting that there aren't you know difficult situations where I'm not suggesting there isn't the war isn't sometimes necessary. But I don't think it's necessary right now. I think we we we've gone drunk on war and we're drunk on power. And you know. not speaking to any specific religious tradition, but speaking to a wisdom tradition, you know, pride cometh before the fall. I mean, whether that's out of the Bible or another, you know, you could look, look in, in another uh, tradition and find sort of similar sort of a slogan, so to speak. 
you know, I, I really do believe that that there is a space for reason and thoughtfulness and really actually encouraged to listen and to try to engage with people in a fair and, and just manner. Humility needeth. Yeah, well, I agree with everything you guys just said. I, I, find, I, I really I thought your point about ISIS's um, sort of adaptation of our, of our entertainment uh, methods was interesting because, I mean, some of the videos they put out are incredibly well-produced. I mean, it almost seems like yeah, I mean it's totally like they're they're in it's just by watching the aesthetics of them and the sort of the, the the way that they do their cinematography very influenced by American films and also influenced by American video games and that's that's kind of disturbing in and of itself how it's already gone that far where it's now being fed back to us in the form of, you know, their propaganda arm. Yeah, I just wanted to um you to just talk about what you're working on, uh give us some information about the upcoming panel and how people can support your journalism. Yeah, so right now I have currently um, several hundred Freedom of Information Act requests and a couple of lawsuits like that are current and also upcoming against the U.S. government for information related to the WikiLeaks investigation, Manning, and other national security-related um, stuff. Um, I actually am currently working on a piece about the WikiLeaks investigation with uh, two other journalists, um, and it will expose new information. And... Uh, let's see, I have, a, have um, a panel, hopefully, I mean, I find out actually officially in a, in a day, but um, I've submitted a panel with um, four other journalists, um, including Tim Sharrock, Chris Hedges, um, Ray. Uh, Novoselsky. Uh, thank you for saying <laughs> I think I pronounced his name slightly wrong, too, but. Yeah, and then also a you're awesome, lawyer. Ray. You're listening. <laughs> Ahmed Gapur to talk about the entertainment superpowers. Oh, I remember what I was going to say. Interestingly enough, uh, let me finish this first. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then also, you know, I'm, I'm basically researching a book that I'm going to write um, about the largest criminal investigation ever conducted into a publisher and its sources. Um, so that's what I've been working on. So a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Well, that all sounds Jeez. very uh, interesting. We'll we'll keep people posted on that stuff. So. I should probably say, so, so I'll say this. So there's one other issue that's really interesting around this whole ideas of developing weapons and emergent weapons. And, you know, James Bramford interviewed Snowden and in, in Wired, it came out, you know, the whole idea of monster mind and how do you, how do you automatize essentially um, defense against cyber attacks, right? Or like offensive cyber attacks. Now we operate in a system where, you know, weapons are now, being constructed or designed around meaningful human, um, you know, agency. So the question is, is what's the line between a computer algorithm or, a, you know, the heuristics that ultimately, uh, you know, sort of are designed within the system and the human itself. And like, for example, if you automate drone strikes, it, you know, where's the ethical line for the soldier? Is it the soldier who designs it or is it the soldier who pressed the button or, I mean, it becomes a very discombobulated sort of mess. And that's where we're at right now, because the reality of it is, is the U.S. doesn't have the labor force technically to deal with cyber, quote unquote. Um, and and it, we don't have the, you know, brain power to essentially, you know, defend ourselves or or make offensive maneuvers against our so-called real or imagined threats 
And this is presenting us with this sort of us as a society, not only with just video games and the sort of sociopathy that's very easy to sort of criticize and not understand, but also um, questions about like, you know, where we're going and what we are becoming. When Abby and I have done this, this show before, you know, at least for the last year or so, we've talked about how it seems like things between Russia and the United States are getting, you know, closer and closer to the point of a Cold War. You know, obviously at the most extreme end of that spectrum, you know, even during the 80s, uh, there was still fears of nuclear attacks, you know, or nuclear retaliation, things like that. We're obviously not anywhere near that yet. But I guess what's more concerning to me about sort of that looming climate is here we are already in the war on terror, where, you know, it kind of creates this lens of more jingoism, more racism, especially with the way people view our foreign policy, as you were saying. And also it damages, I think, just mainstream or even, you know, citizen journalism as a whole, it, because everyone is sort of seen through this lens. But with the addition of something like a new Cold War paradigm, um, I, I guess I'm just wondering what you think about that. If you're if, if that concerns you, do you think it's going to intensify this sort of jingoistic bent <laughs> that's already kind of existed that's come out of the war on terror or be made worse because of the war on terror? Um, it's, hard, well, it's hard to say because I'm not a subject matter expert, but I do want to say this. My hunch, you know, my layman's hunch is that the powers that be, uh, well, the old powers that be, mm -hmm. you know, want a sort of bipolar system um, that, they, you know, they're there's and that and I take where do I get that idea from? Because most of the sort of neocon rubber Kagan. Yeah, traditional neocons like that, you know, Dave, uh, not David Gaddis, that's his son. Uh, Gaddis wrote a book called The Longest Peace. You know, they argue that the Cold War was one of the most stable periods in geopolitics, you know, known to, you know, human beings. And so, you know, I, I wonder if, you know, if there is going to be more jingoism or if, if they're trying to push it back to some kind of, you know, situation where, there's two or three powers to sort of keep their spheres of influence in check. Um, I don't know. I don't know even if if the current statesmen are capable of maintaining a facade like that in the current media environment. I mean, look at what happened with Obama and um, and you know. No, Morales is plain. I mean, oh, Morales. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have like basically statesmanship as reality TV. It's very hard to maintain that sort of right. like third wall or fourth wall, whatever the hell they call it in theater. You know what I mean? Like it becomes literally like, you know, the real world. And I, I, right. I feel like that is playing so much into um, the way in which states are interacting with each other. It's changing their sort of their sort of diplomatic relations with each other. Well, certainly Latin America is completely um, isolating the U.S. I mean, Obama's more isolated from Latin America than Bush was, especially with this new Venezuela, you know, threat to national security bullshit. Um, but I, but within this country, I just fear. I mean, especially working for RT, I guess I encounter it so much more because I just kind of you you encounter those reactionaries and i think it's a big problem with the left too is it's kind of unyielding support for russia no matter what russia does or it's like you're a russian propagandist and russia's evil and <clears throat> it's just going back to your point about just like critical thinking 
and understanding that nothing's black and white, um, understanding Russia's own political evolution, understanding our own, our own, um, and just not reaffirming everything that we think that we know about the world, you know, not surrounding ourselves by yes men, like trying to understand why things are the way they are. I mean, so much of this boils down to political education, because as much as we, our generation, likes to pretend that we're reinventing the wheel with, you know, new technologies, nothing could be further from the case, because in order to develop kind of expertise in these kinds of areas, you need to spend time, and time is money for the average person. Right, right. Or you need to create an environment where, because most of the most of our public conversations about these kinds of issues come from, a, you know, a couple of, like, uh, NGOs, a couple of uh, media outlets that are actually producing original content, a couple of um, think tanks that are tied to. So how do you groom the kinds of thought that allows for people to actually develop uh, the expertise and also the the thinking around these particular sort of quandaries or these Mm -hmm. particular outlooks? And and, And I wonder, like, it's so much about grooming, too. And a learning curve. And I'm not just talking about, you know, bringing up a generation that's grown up on the Internet. But I'm saying that simply our outlook on all of these issues are so much tied to some legacy education that we can't even, you know, trace. You know, where does our thinking about Russia and the U.S. come from? Mm -hmm. The public debate about it, you know, or any or, or, or public diplomacy. So. We have to figure out somehow, um, some of us, whoever's interested in doing it, we have to figure out a way to simply, uh, even if it's small fries, figure out a way to build uh, that learning curve into the communities that we're engaging in. Whether right, those, right. those are those communities like, you know, the historical record becomes really, really important. And that's why I think WikiLeaks is important fundamentally. That's my personal opinion as an archive. I totally agree. And this isn't just sort of like, you know, you know, boring talk for, you know, the the the, the vaguely like, you know, interested at 3 a.m., you know, like this is really fundamentally how society works. And until we have those kinds of organizations or until we build those kinds of sort of niches or society, we're going to just basically be getting served up the same old, same old. Right. And, and the analysis of John Oliver's bizarre interview with Snowden. Um, that Glenn Greenwald wrote, which was just like pointing out that it's not just that Americans don't know about surveillance or Snowden, it's that they don't know and they're not really engaged about anything political. And that that's a gross generalization. I know that there's a shitload of very um, awake, aware and engaged people who are dedicating their lives to this. But I think, yeah, it's that fundamental question. How do we change that? How, how, why have we been failed? Why have we failed ourselves? Um, how can we work to change these institutions on a local level? Um, and I mean, I know that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to do that right now with independent media. We are totally going to do it. It's just going to take time. It really, yeah, it takes time. We're going to do it, Abby. We're totally going to do it. It's going to take time. It's going to take a lot of like experience and we're just going to keep moving forward. It's generational. That's I, I, yeah, I think people become impatient and that's why, People get disengaged really quickly from political activism because they want to see change right now. And they have to realize that this shit takes years, decades. Um, we're going to get there. We're winning the information war on, you know, it's slow, but we're going to fucking win. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. Amen to that. 
<laughs> um, Alexa O'Brien, uh, give a holler to your website and Twitter. AlexaO'Brien.com, and I'm, you can find me at Carwin B, C-A-R-W-I-N-B. And, how, and people can donate through your website, right? You can donate through my website. There's a link. If you want to donate to my FOIA fund, and it's specifically for FOIA or research costs that I do accumulate. I mean, it's a lot of money to file FOIA and file lawsuits. Right. This is true investigative journalism, guys. I mean, this is this is where it starts. So we have to step up to the plate and support people like Alexa. Um, thank you so much for all of your incredible work. Uh, it's an incredible honor to talk to you and hear your insight on so many pressing issues. Uh, everyone, thanks for listening. Please donate to MediaRoots.org. We are an indie operation. I am no longer uh, working for the Russian government. So any help is greatly appreciated. Um, thanks so much for listening. And Robbie, have a great night, everyone. Yeah, and thank you. Abby, and thank you so much, Alexa. It was it was great to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Media Roots Radio. This podcast is the product of many long hours of hard work and love. If you want to encourage our voice, please consider supporting us as we continue to speak from outside party lines. Even the smallest donations help us with operating costs. If you do want to donate, please give a shout out to Media Roots Radio in the information line so my brother and I can thank you the next time we do a podcast. Thanks so much.